Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at myselfland.com. A question again to start the day. Uh, and the question is, when do you feel closest to God? When do you feel closest to God? What are you doing? Where, what are the circumstances? Uh, if, you were to, if I was to ask each one of you, when do you feel closest to God? What is, what's your answer going to be? I want to kind of back away from that for a moment and kind of then come back to it. Uh, but I was struck by a statement that I, I read this week in the scripture, something that I'd uh, passed over many times. I'm sure many of you have done the same thing. I actually was in Exodus 20, and I wanted to just get straight to the Ten Commandments. And uh, I really must have read these words, I don't know how many times, perhaps thousands of times, and just like, okay, 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 let's get right to the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots and all that. Uh, but look at the first statement that God makes at the beginning of the Ten Commandments. He says, I am the Lord your God. I mean, th just think about that for a moment. This is a covenant statement coming from our Father. And the key word is your. He's not just saying, I am God. He's saying, I am your. I am the Lord your God. See, before he even gives out the Ten Commandments, God is giving himself to his people. He's giving them uh, without any response from their part, just this is my covenant relationship with you. They haven't kept anything. They haven't even read them yet, in a sense. But already he says, I am your God. And it's only then that he begins to give the commandments. They were never intended, you see, to be a, a list of rules to keep to the place that we would eventually get to the place where he would become our God. He's already said, before he even gives them out, I am your God. These come after he's already redeemed his people from Egypt. He's already told them they are his people. We are his people. They were intended, the commandments, to describe what this relationship between God and his people should look like. A covenant relationship with God and what it's supposed to look like. What would it look like if, if this was a kingdom of priests? What would it look like if we were a holy nation? And there's more. Moses brought the Ten Commandments down on how many tablets? How many tablets from the mountain? Two. I heard somebody really brave thinking, I hope the answer isn't Jesus. I'm just going to say two. And he was right. People usually think this was because God ran out of space on the tablets. I mean, think about that. God running out of space? I don't think so. There's five commandments on each one. God ran out? I don't think so. No. Almost certainly, it's not because there was no room. Why two then? Well, it's the same today. When a covenant was made, part of the process involved making two copies, one for each party, right? So they could each have their copy. They could each keep it, reread it, look at it again, even show it publicly. Each tablet had all 10 commandments on them. One of the copies belonged to Israel. Who does the other copy belong to? God. And God is giving to Israel both copies. This just sends like goosebumps down, down my body here. He gives both copies of the covenant to Israel. And he says, put them in the Ark of the Covenant and take them with you. For where you will be, 
I will be. I'm not leaving my copy. I'm actually with my copy, and the copy is with you. I will be with you. I will be with you. And every time the people of Israel saw the tablets, they didn't see what we tend to see. Oh, there's something we should hang up someplace, a list of rules. They saw a promise. They saw the promise of the presence of God with them. This desire of God's is so central that it's why he created everything in the first place. It's why he's been doing all he's been doing throughout history. It's so central that in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, it says that when God sets everything right, the fulfillment of human existence will be described with these great, great, great words. Now the dwelling of God is with human beings, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. That's what this whole thing is about. Recently, I was talking to someone who said, I've liked this whole Back to the Basics series, but I, I still don't walk with God the way I think I should. I still get caught up in a whole pile of things. I rush here. I rush there. I often get to the end of my day and I realize I haven't lived it very close to God. I know to read my Bible and to pray and I do those things, but it just feels like I'm missing something in my spiritual life. I'm missing a connectedness. There's a, there's a key that was passed out one day and that was the day I was sick. Do you ever feel that way? That conversation led into a discussion about a book that I'd read uh, years ago about spiritual pathways. It's called Sacred Pathways by Gary Thomas. He observes that there are different approaches, internal pathways to God that people of faith have accessed over the years. Candy read for us, if you seek me, you will find me. God really does want us to know him. So doesn't it make sense that he would actually provide for us freeways, sort of paths without obstructions, that we could connect with him in special and real ways? And I would like to introduce you to some of these pathways. We're kind of, you know, long weekends, I always think it's a little more fun to little do a little different exercise. So we're going we're gonna to kind of walk through these pathways that people use to draw near to God because the closer you get to God, the more energy, the more vitality, the more passion you have and in turn experience the presence and power of God throughout your day. So here we go. The first pathway that I'd like to talk to you about is called the relational pathway. Some people by temperament and God's wiring pattern in their lives will always find it's very difficult to flourish in their walk with him if they attempt to do it alone. For folks wired up this way, solitude feels more like solitary confinement. It's suffocating. It's frustrating. If this is you, you might even discover as you are wrestling with something, it actually seems to get worse if you work on it by yourself. You have your private conversation with me, myself, and I, and the three of you can't agree. Bible studies done in isolation produce very little result. Serving alone is a drag. Sitting alone in a worship service is enough to ruin the experience for you. But inject a strong dose of relationship, however, and everything changes. The individual begins to flourish spiritually almost overnight. When they're in a group of prayers... They feel like they could pray all night. 
Sometimes they do. When, the study, when they study the Bible with a half a dozen other fired up Christ followers, they become enriched. They just dwell right into it. Serving feels like no burden at all if they get to do it as part of a team. Once a person realizes this and learns to live into it, they begin to flourish spiritually in ways they probably never could if they just attempted to do spiritual development all by themselves. Do you know anyone like this? While we are all, of course, created to be relational, right from Adam on, when God said to him, it isn't good that you're alone in this, there are some in the Bible who seem to find a particular pathway, a highway, a closeness to God, a joy in community. Perhaps the most obvious are three people who are never, ever mentioned separately. Not once. Always, all three names are always mentioned together. Hint, even through the fire. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They just roll off our tongues. They never are said separately. They're never mentioned separately. I think Nehemiah had a relational pathway as well. He certainly understood the need for teamwork in rebuilding the walls. And almost every time his name is mentioned, it's mentioned in company with others. There's others around him. Might some of you have this as your pathway and you just never explored it? If you're tempted to start a cell group when you're in a group of people, like in an elevator, what might happen if you recognize this as your pathway, as a, as a highway, as a way to draw near to God and choose to live into it? What would happen if you would design a spiritual formation plan for yourself around this? I know someone who heard that solitude was the acid test of someone's faith. But every time she tried it, she came away brooding and morose. It was a defeating experience for her. Dark thoughts filled her mind. Instead of it being the best way for her to connect with God, it was just a setup for spiritual frustration because her pathway was relational. When she discovered this, she started engaging with God in community and she began to grow. Some of you have this relational pathway. A caution, though. You will also likely be very relational with others, and you will love that. You must be careful, however, that that relationship with others doesn't get in the way, doesn't take precedence, doesn't keep you from having a great relationship with God. A second pathway, a, a second way to draw near to God in deep connection might be called the intellectual pathway. This is the kind of person whose mind must be fully engaged before any significant spiritual progress can occur. These are the people who really uh, will never be able to come into a relationship with God until they discover the rational underpinnings of the Christian faith. People who have the intellectual pathway often keep several intellectually stretch stretching books with them wherever they go. They gravitate towards activities and events that challenge their minds. Their hearts and their wills cannot engage fully in faith until their mind is completely convinced of the matter. But something else is also true. When a person with an intellectual pathway finally gets their mind convinced of something, watch out. Watch out because there's no stopping these folks when they get going. When Martin Luther came to clarity on the truth of the gospel that the just shall live by faith, when John Calvin grasped 
the doctrine of the sovereignty of God when the late Chuck Colson fully comprehended the intellectual supremacy of a Christian worldview, the walls of his prison came down and so did many others. Solomon is an obvious example of one, needed, one who needed to have his mind engaged. In fact, when told by God to ask for something, he asked for wisdom. And the book of Proverbs is filled with the result. I think the Apostle Paul had the intellectual pathway. Read the book of Romans and you'll see Paul kind of just shining through. He cries out, we're never going to change the world unless people's minds are transformed. Do you know anyone like this? Am I talking to you right now? Here's something to be careful about. I'll let Paul tell you himself. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Always check that your intellectual pathway, you know, the brain power you have, leads to growth in your heart. Always check that. You worship the Lord and love others. If it's just all up here, you've missed out. Another pathway that is a way of drawing near to God is the serving pathway. These folks can't seem to catch their spiritual stride and feel consistently close to God until or unless they're quietly and consistently laboring in the church in ministry somewhere. They're the doers. They read their Bibles for sure, and they pray like the rest of us. But if you were to ask them, when do you feel closest to God? When do you feel most dialed in, most joyful, most alive in your faith? They probably won't say, during a long prayer and share time, or when I'm reading a passage in the Old Testament, or even during a message, as brilliant as they are. <clears throat> Do you know what they'll probably say? When I'm serving, when I'm doing something for God, when I'm helping someone, I feel so alive inside. I feel so close to God. Some of you are resonating with this right now as I speak. You don't have to tell this group that they're loving God when they love others. They feel it. They're living it. When others are walking away from a person in need, they're jumping in with both feet, not because they think they should, but because they're moved by compassion to do so. Does that phrase sound familiar? It should. It's used many times to describe how Jesus felt. It's the phrase used to describe the Good Samaritan who comes upon the mugged and robbed traveler by the side of the road. Joseph's entire story of blessing is a result of his desire to serve. Mordecai in the book of Esther is a man who traveled the serving pathway. First for Esther, then for the king, and then for the whole nation of Israel in captivity. People on the serving pathway have a hard time saying no. Again, not because of some character fault, but because they truly find a joy and a closeness to God there more than anywhere else. Your caution, if this is you, is to realize that not only is God present when you're serving, but present all the time. And you also need to learn to receive service, to receive love, as well as offer it. That's often very hard for people on the serving pathway. The next pathway, the next way of drawing near to God, is one that has caused a great deal of angst in the heart of many. It's the contemplative pathway. All throughout church history, there's been a relatively small group of believers who have felt like they've been marching to a different drummer. 
Rather than filling up their calendars with relational opportunities, serving opportunities, or getting just sucked into general busyness, contemplatives guard their alone times really carefully. For some reason, which they don't usually fully understand, people and activities tend to drain them. They could spend almost limitless amounts of time in solitude. Give them a Bible or a good piece of literature, they could disappear on you for days. Farming, interestingly enough, often agrees with contemplatives. Hours upon hours out on the equipment alone is enjoyable when you've got some deep thought to think about. A pastor friend of mine is on the contemplative pathway. I'm continually listening to him as he talks about something going, whoa, whoa, there's a deep thought. It's going to take me a while to unpack that one. See you later. Contemplative spends hours reflecting simply on the goodness of God. Often these folks have enormous capacities for prayer and private worship. They often have very sensitive spiritual antenna out there that can detect the activity of God around them and then kind of zero in on it. Contemplatives are the ones who reflect on human suffering in the world and keep wondering, why is this happening? Why do so few people care? Why is the church not always like Acts chapter 2? A fellow I know who's contemplative uh, was in uh, some disagreement with some people and entered into mediation. And one day, I, he kept reporting to me and I kept asking him how it was going. One day he said, oh, you know what? Actually, it's been very fruitful. And I said, well, that's great. Uh, what about the other side? Oh, they haven't showed up yet. It was just like a meeting with the mediator, but the other side hasn't come. But it's been great to have deep thought, right? They just love to get into deep thought, introspection. True, these are usually also the ones who completely forget about meetings, run out of gas in their car, never change the oil, because they're always lost in thought. They're often the ones who compose the lyrics, though, that stir our hearts or write the books that take us into deep thoughts about God. Contemplatives throughout history have served as the conscience for the rest of us. Daniel and John the Baptist are prime examples. Contemplatives call us back to caring about the poor. They help us focus on what kingdom life is really supposed to look like and be about. Do you know any contemplatives? Might you be one? Sometimes we find ourselves wanting to tell contemplatives, get busy. You've thought the deep thoughts long enough. It's time to take the hill now. This may bring to mind a pair of sisters in the Bible. One had the service pathway. She was busy in the kitchen preparing things. Her name was Martha, and she actually found herself getting rebuked, not for performing her act of service, but by judging her sister Mary, who was contemplating, who was contemplative, being in the very presence of Jesus. Contemplatives, you see, need to have the space for however long they need to think those deep thoughts, because eventually something wonderful is going to come out of that, and it's going to bless the whole church. Might any of you be contemplatives? If you are, watch out for living into your pathway so much that you retreat like a hermit from everyone and all others. Next is the polar opposite. I don't even think this is a word, but this is the word the author uses. Activist, an activistic pathway. This person is not at his or her best until they're going like the speed of sound, ripping through life, hair parted back, gasping for breath because of the way these folks are wired. They want 
they revel, revel in the challenge of, of an intensive spiritual environment, environment. When they're right on the edge, they feel very close to God. In fact, they use his name quite often when they're on the edge. Oh God, oh God, help me, oh God. Right? They're just right out there. They're just, everything's behind them. Caution's gone. Everything's gone. I'm just, I'm, I'm sold out. I'm just in this and I'm going. They just fly. And if you don't understand these types, they can drive you crazy because you're, af you're afraid for them. Like you're going to hurt yourself or somebody else. It seems as though they're always biting off more kingdom work than they can chew. Casual onlookers start to feel sorry for them until they realize you like to live like this. You're choosing this way to go. No one has a gun to your head. You put those people on a snowmobile, they'll figure out a way to triple the speed so they can just race, right? They like to catalyze others into kingdom action. They see a hill, they want to take it. Don't think God made a mistake when he wired up some of you in the church this way. The church of Christ wouldn't be what it is today without these movers and shakers. These are the people in the Bible who are perhaps most easily identified. Why? Because we sometimes think of them as, well, hotheads. People like Moses, Elijah, Habakkuk, and of course, Peter. If you read church history, there's a guy named William, William Wilberforce, almost single-handedly fights slavery in England and wins. D.L. Moody kept his associates wondering how one person can do all that he could do in a single day. Ask activists when they feel closest to God, and many of them will respond by saying, when I'm out on a limb of faith, when I'm dangling out at the end of a limb of faith in the name of Christ, and it's swaying, and it's shaking, and it's creaking. Are some of you activistic types? Can I give you some advice? Every so often, jump off the rocket you're on and look back to see if you've left any bodies in your wake. You may get so focused on taking the next hill that everyone starts to become a means to that end rather than the ones you're supposed to be loving and encouraging and taking with you. You have such strong impulses that you've got to be extremely careful that, you're, you're, that they aren't leading you, the, the impulses leading you, as opposed to God's leading. This is such an important point. This is one of kind of my, my mantras as I go through life. And here it is. Free of charge for you today. Always, always, always be extremely careful when God seems to be agreeing with you rather than the other way around. Always. Can I just say it again? Always be careful when God seems to be agreeing with your path, your train, your idea, rather than the other way around. In my experience, it's almost always, if not exclusively, the other way around. Are you sure, God? Ah, it's not my plan. Right? How often is it like, oh, hey, God, here's my plan. Yeah, it's perfect. Fantastic. Let's go. No, it doesn't often work that way. In fact, more often he's granting you the desire of your heart, not necessarily saying, hey, you're on the right path. This is what I want. You know, good plan, good plan. No, he wants to stretch us. How often have we heard? He, doesn't in, he isn't interested in our comfort. He's interested in our character. Another pathway is the creation path. 
A lot of people draw near to God along the creation path. They come alive from head to toe whenever they get themselves into natural splendor, be it mountains or deserts or plains or woods or the beach or the ocean, you name it. Being in these environments dramatically increases these folks' awareness of God. Often I hear or read of people who draw direct spiritual meaning from what it is that they're beholding in the natural realm. I work with someone who would literally go crazy, cooped up in the church all day, like banging off the walls. But get him out to a park and juices start to flow. He'll just walk around, find a place to sit and stare off into the distance. I went with him one day and I said, well, what do you get out of that? He said, well, sometimes I think how great and beautiful God must be to come up with all the beauty and all the variety. And I find myself singing, when through the woods and forest glades I wander, I hear the birds sing sweetly in the tree, then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. He can't help but be drawn to love and beauty and the greatness of God as he looks around him. These are the folks who hike through the heat of the midday sun and then sit down with some water and think about how God restores dry and thirsty souls. These are the ones who think about, you know, my anchor holds when they're out in a boat, like some of you maybe today are fishing, but you're paying attention, right? Okay. Ask a person with this creation pathway when they feel the closest to God, they'll tell you whenever I'm out in nature, I feel his presence. It's almost like I can hear his voice through the wind and the trees. Ask them where they would most enjoy doing their prayer time or their journaling or even their cell time, and they'll say, outside, let's go. I wonder if Abraham didn't have this pathway. God seems to always speak to him through the nature around him. Another pastor I know said he always wondered why Jesus withdrew to the Mount of Olives until he actually went to Israel and went there and went onto the Mount of Olives and saw its beauty just outside the walls of Jerusalem and then he never had to ask the question again. People on the creation pathway need to guard against using it as an escape, as a place to run and hide away rather than dealing with things. Remember, the best of God's creation are the people that you encounter. One more pathway before I give you a couple of reflection thoughts here. Another pathway of drawing near to God. This is the worship pathway. These are the people who, while you are busy concentrating on just keeping up with the slides and the song, they're already transported somewhere else. They're in another world altogether. They aren't even aware that their hands are lifted up or their eyes are closed or their face is taken on an entirely peaceful and joyful expression or even that they're singing in tune or not. The combination of the music and the words just transports them, lifts them up, takes them right into the very throne room of God. David, a man after God's own heart, is one who comes to mind, who had this pathway. He just seemed to need to praise God all the time. He wrote many of the Psalms, most of them ending in praise. He appointed musicians and singers to lead worship and worship God so enthusiastically that when his wife criticized him for that, he replied, I'm going to celebrate the Lord even in a more undignified way than this. I know this pathway quite well, not because it's mine necessarily, although I've learned that it can draw me close to God, but because it's the main pathway for two people in my immediate family. They can hear a worship song once and know it while I'm still trying to pick up the tune. You would know one of them would be Zach. 
And from the time he could start to even begin to sing and carry a tune, there was always one and only one expression on his face, a smile. You'll see it here most Sundays, right? It's just a smile. He can't help it. He just smiles. It just, it just tra- worship transports him into the very presence of God. And a smile is really, truly the right response, isn't it? But you can, these people can hear a worship song and know it, and I'm still trying to pick out the tomb. I'm still trying to decide if I like it, and they're already living it. They're experiencing it. Without worship like this, all the teaching, all the activity, all the ministry of church just fills their heads, but their hearts are empty. If this is you, heartfelt worship often brings you to tears, and you choke at the words you so love to sing. Trust me, you are not having a midlife crisis. You're not cracking up. Your heart is bursting because it's grown so big and so close to God. Don't be afraid to show it. It actually encourages the rest of us to follow you. One time my wife Jennifer was cruising down the perimeter listening to a worship song, just loving it, and singing away to her heart's content when suddenly there were some flashing lights and she's pulled over and all she could say to the officer was, go ahead and write me up. I was having a great time of worship. I forgot to look at the speedometer altogether. Some of you have that pathway too. But watch out for basing your connection with God on an emotional worship high. Worship is not the experience. Worship draws you into the throne room where you experience God. Do you see? It's not the worship is not a be all and end all in itself. It's a pathway to get you into God's presence and worship Him, experience Him. So here are your assignments about these pathways. Some time to reflect here. The first one is obvious. See if you can identify the spiritual pathway that seems to fit your wiring pattern, the way God made you. You might even have more than one. That's quite okay. There is sort of no limit to this. This isn't spiritual gifts we're talking about here. We're talking about just ways that you draw close to God. But see if you can identify which ones are yours. Resist the temptation to compare and resist the temptation to identify the pathway you wish was yours, okay? When I thought about it, I thought I kind of slotted myself in pretty quickly into the serving and intellectual kind of pathways. And I thought, ah, nuts. The real spiritual heavyweights throughout church history have always been the contemplatives. They think the deep thoughts. They write the deep stuff. And the activistic ones went well. They're always out there getting great things done for God. We know their names. Then the more I thought about it, I felt the Holy Spirit saying to me, Lauren, that's that's so not the way you're wired up. That's so not you. You're not like a monk. You're not a desert father type. You're not one to take the hill and, and never look back. You care. You want to be right in there with people where they're at. And I said, you're right. That's exactly right. And then I said, you know, besides, those people are always fasting and eating locusts and you know, all that stuff. Probably lentils was in there too. And I'm not real good at telling people to get moving. You know, throw caution to the wind. Jump off the edge. There's going to be a parachute for you. I like to know where I'm going to land. So remember, this is not a competition, nor are the pathways a way to avoid the spiritual disciplines 
that Scripture lays out for us. We're going to probably talk about that in the weeks ahead. It's simply a way that you connect intimately with God. Second, explore. Lean into your pathway. Try it. Try it. If the creation pathway is your path, you know what? There's still a lot of daylight left today. Get out into nature today. Take a walk. Take the long way around the parking lot back to your car. Stop somewhere outside and just say, God, I want to spend more time with you, and this is the best place. I want you to speak to me, and I'll listen. I want to pour out my heart to you in return. If the relational pathway is your pathway, then just make it your priority to get around a couple of other like-minded people, and you know you'll kind of get on fire and grow. If the serving pathway is yours, well, then find a place to volunteer, a place of service, and so on. Thirdly, Develop an appreciation for all the pathways. There's a temptation once you kind of go, oh, wow, this is my highway to God. Then you just kind of, ah, forget all the others. They're not important. Or perhaps even worse, what's the matter with you? This is the best highway. Don't do it. It's dangerous to do that, friends. There's something important that you can learn from all these pathways we talked about, and there's probably more. For example, people on serving pathways should periodically read intellectually stimulating material. It'll stretch your faith. Activistic types should quiet themselves, do the slow breathing that Stefan often talks about, slow themselves down from time to time, sit for a while, just sit in creation. I know it'll drive you crazy, but just sit for a while in creation. Or they should lean heavily into the worship pathway and so on. Creation pathwayers should come in from the forest preserves once in a while. Contemplatives should party with those who are the more relational types. They won't mind. They just love to have more people around. You get the picture. Lean into your pathway, but continue to, do, to try to explore the other ones as well because it rounds you out a little bit. And you might find there's other ways that you can connect with God in special ways. It stretches you in a very good way. See, these are not your spiritual gifts again. You can and perhaps should enjoy every single pathway. So here's the point of all this. And you're wondering, particularly you contemplatives are wondering, was he ever going to get to the point? One of the greatest gifts that a human being has, one of our great freedoms, is that we're all free to focus our attention wherever we choose to, wherever we want to. We have a choice whether we want to zero in on God's presence in our lives or not. When we focus our attention on God, we draw near to him. We think about him. We talk to him. We ask for his help. We pray. We tell him our plans. With thanksgiving, we pour out our hearts to him, our problems, and we listen to him in return. If I was going to boil down the practice of spiritual life in a few simple statements from one place in Scripture, I'd go to Psalm 16. This is where I would go. Psalm 16.8 says simply, I have set the Lord always before me. I wouldn't mind having that on my tombstone, would you? I have set the Lord always before me. I'll just pause a moment to ask you, have you ever considered doing that? You can, of course. It's a choice. You'll not be perfect at it, but just keep coming back to it. That's the way I want to live. I will set the Lord always before me. When I do that, there are certain thoughts that are characteristics of God that will start to flow into my life. When these thoughts are present, there's a real good chance that the result 
of my embracing that God is with me. What I want to do is walk through some of these kinds of thoughts that God will bring into your life so that you can recognize them when they come and celebrate his presence. The first one, we've, when we've set God before us, we know that when we have a sense of reassurance. Are you reassured today? Because we're always aware of being in his presence and care and protection. It's reassuring, isn't it? Isn't that reassuring? Did you come here with that reassurance? I'm always in his presence. I'm always in his care. I'm always in his, under his protection, his wings. God says to Joshua, Joshua, I know you're taking over the reins here, and that's got to be scary. Hey, wait a minute. Be strong and courageous. Don't be terrified. Don't be discouraged. For, why? For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Whatever you're doing, whenever the time, I'm right there. Don't be afraid. It's reassuring, isn't it? Things are okay. Now, if you're going to practice God's presence in this regard, it becomes very important how you think about who God is and what kind of messages God would, would send you. A lot of people, when they think about God, they see him as kind of a divine performance evaluator, and they know they don't ever measure up. So as a result, they think of God in this way. I have, I'll avoid him. I don't want to be evaluated. I'm going to avoid him. I'm not going to talk to him. Are you kidding? I don't need to be scolded. You won't always set him before you, you see? It's real important that you understand that whatever you do in life, God simply wants to say to you, I want to connect with you. I want to be with you. I'm not going to push you away. Don't be afraid. I'm always with you. It hit Paul in prison one day. He's in chains facing a horrible future. And all of a sudden, the thought strikes him, I can do this. And he writes these words down. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's with me. What? I can do this. When these thoughts come into your mind, this is God with you right now. This is the Emmanuel principle, God with us at work in your life. <clears throat> The second kind of experience, oh boy, people in the 11 o'clock are in trouble. <clears throat> the second kind of inner experience thought that you will have when, is when God present is with you is that you'll get guidance. David put it like this, I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. You're in a store. There's a clerk being badgered behind the counter. Everybody's upset, treating her badly. You get this sudden inclination to look her in the eye, to say something with some humanity in it, some care in it, some love in it. You get an inclination to treat her like a person with dignity because she is. Jesus died for her. Or even just to pray a silent prayer of blessing for her. God, pour out a blessing on her life. She matters to you, and therefore she matters to me. Where does that thought come from? You're stumped with some issue at home or at work, and then an idea comes to you. It might be a big one, it might be a small one, but it will help. It's just what you need. Where does that come from? The Bible says if anybody lacks wisdom, let them ask of God, because God gives generously of people who ask. You feel distant from your child. Then all of a sudden, an opportunity arises to build a bridge, and you reconnect. You're with a group of people, and you're about to say something stupid, something self-promotional, something that will inflict damage. All of a sudden, a little, still, small voice says, zip it, zip it. Where does that voice come from? From my wife. That's where it comes from. 
No, it comes from the Lord, right? Every time that happens and you listen to him and you respond, you increase your capacity for being with God. And that brings me to the third of these inner experiences, when you've set God before you. This is the hardest of all these experiences. It involves the convicting presence of God. When you're going down a wrong road, that little stab, that little stab of pain that says, no, 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 wrong way, turn around. They're never hopeless thoughts. They're never, oh, now you've done it. You're gone. They just say, stop going that way. Bring it into the light. Turn around. Go in the other direction. What's another word for go in the other direction? Repent. It just means turn around. Repent just means turn around and go in the other direction. Do a 180. Confess. You know what confessing is? Confessing, I love to think of this because it helps me, because otherwise we think, it's, oh, this is a horrible thing to confess. Confessing is just agreeing with God. He already knows. It's not like, oh, where was I when that happened? No, he already knows. So confessing is simply agreeing with God about something that he already knows about you. Just agree with him. Confess and repent. The fourth inner indicator of God's presence comes in this verse. Again, Psalm 16. You will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasure of living with you forever. There's a beautiful little phrase in there, granting me the joy. Do you see what is linked to setting God always before us? It's joy. It's joy. The joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. Who doesn't want joy? Life with God, you see, isn't intended to be joyless. Life with God isn't intended to be lifeless. We're going around only once. So let's choose not to go through it like stick in the muds. Let's recognize even joy is something given to us by God. And when? When we set him always before us. When we draw close to him. Let's instead of going through life joyless and lifeless, let's instead chose to accept God's gift of joy through this and put some bright colors around our life, painting our future, our day, with the same paints that God is using. He's using fluorescent neon, I think. Don't use drab grays and think somehow that's more holy. God is saying, you can't truly be around me without some of the joy of my presence spilling over into your life. Which, of course, then begs the question, if you're not experiencing any joy... Are you actually in his presence? Are you, are you walking with him? Are you there? For some of you, that joy will happen today. In just a few moments, you'll be in your car driving away from this service, or you'll be leaving your home or going out into the outdoors or maybe even pulling in that big fish. And this closing song that you're about to hear will be playing in your head and it's just going to bring joy to you. You'll start singing in the car. You'll start moving around a little bit behind the steering wheel, feeling a little foolish, but it will give you joy. You'll be smiling. Some of you will be driving next to that person who's singing like that, and that will give you joy, right? 
Whenever you do a good thing, whenever you experience the Father's joy and pleasure, you'll just get this surge of joy yourself, a surge of satisfaction, because it's a little echo of what happened with God when he was creating the world. At the, at the end of the first day, he looks around at what he's created, and what does he do? He just looks at it and goes, it's good. It's good. And at the end of the second day, he looks around again, and he says, that's good. That's really good. And you'll leave from here, and you'll see the sun or a sunset or a tree today or a flower in your backyard or the strength and courage and grace of an athlete that you're watching, or the face of a friend or a family member that you love. And something inside you will say, that's so good. That's really good. And you'll just feel the truth of it. You'll feel the rush of gratitude and just the sheer goodness of God, of being alive and walking with God. And when that happens, just pause for a second and sing something like this. Thanks again for joining us for our weekend message. If you have any needs or prayer requests, please give us a call at 204-326-9020 or email prayer at myselfland.com. Once again, our phone number is 204-326-9020 and the email address is prayer at myselfland.com.